uh, make this declaration of faith together. This is my Bible. God's written word to me. It reveals to me who God says I am and tells me what God says I can have. Because it's how he thinks, I choose to believe and act on what I'll read. And therefore, I'm transformed. Man, we've been in a study called the, the Journey, and this is week number three of four. My subject this morning is entitled, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. I, I want for just a moment to go back to last week and make a couple of statements. We discovered last week in our topic, The Presence and Absence of God, that rather than God abandoning Jesus on the cross and turning his back on him, it was actually one of the greatest expressions of God's presence in our lives ever recorded in the Bible. You'll remember those words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But we did a little exegesis on that and discovered that that's not actually what Christ said at all. And he was quoting the Psalms, Psalm 22. And uh, actually, it was a cry that reverberated throughout the universe. Here's the literal rendering. It's in our message last week. My strength, my strength, to what have you committed me? You see, in the movie The Shack, I love the part where God... Uh, the, the main character of the Bible, I should say, uh, Mac, has uh, confronted God and is standing there in the presence of God and questioning God about this very topic and this very verse. My God, my God. And Mac is saying to God, God, you yourself turned your back on your own son. And Mac is using that as a, as a basis for believing that God turned his back on him, the main character, Mac, who had lost his daughter. His daughter had been uh, uh, abducted from a camping site they were at. And, and so his life fell apart and he was angry and mad at God. And he brought this verse up in that discussion with God. Here's a couple of the things in the movie that God says to Mac. I am not who you think I am. No, you misunderstand the mystery. We were there together, and God reaches out her arm. Uh, God is played by a female in the movie The Shack. She reaches out her arm, and in, in her wrist, there's a nail hole. And she says, God says, we were there together. And then she says something that really is life-changing if you'll grab a hold of this. She says, Mac, I never left him, speaking of Jesus, I never left you, and I never left Missy, your daughter. You see, the Bible says in Psalm 23, verse 4 and 5, even if I pass through the dark or death's dark ravines, I will fear no disaster, for you are with me. Your rod and staff reassure me. You prepare a table for me, even as my enemies watch. Have you ever seen one of those old westerns where uh, the good guys were coming up 
uh, to a, a mountainous region and they were hunting somebody down or they were trying to pass through on their journey and uh, this ominous music begins to play. You know what I mean? And, and you just know as they begin to approach, the rocks are high and there's only one way to pass through and it's through a ravine. And as they start going through the ravine, the music gets, gets more ominous. ominous. <laughs> the boy is trying to learn to speak after 35 years of doing this. And so, uh, and you just know, and you're sitting there in your seat saying, no. And, and all of a sudden, up from behind, one of the rocks pops an Indian feather. And, and behind another rock pops an Indian with his bow. And behind another, and you just know, and you're saying, no, no, don't enter there. You're going to enter an ambush. That's the picture here of Psalm 23. I just love it. Even though I pass through death-dark ravines, I will fear no disaster. Why? Because you're there preparing a table for me as my enemies watch. I just love the language of that. God always meets you and then decimates and shatters the temporary situations of your life with his emancipating presence. There is no darkness in God. There is no dark, there is no light, there is no heaven or hell in this sense of a place where you could flee from God's presence. It's all one and the same. He is there. You can't run from God. There's no place you could go where God would not be with you. I love that. And so as we approach today's topic about why bad things happen to good people, I'm struck with this, this thought. The very idea that bad things happen to, quote, good people. Uh, does anybody find that an issue just from the start? Um, who's judging who's good and who's bad? Does God discriminate and bless good people? And curse bad people? So what do we do with the fact that good things happen to bad people? So for instance, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it is said you shall love the, your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus is speaking under the law. He's talking about the legalism and the law that, of course, all of the religious leaders of the time spoke about and spoke from the truth that they operated in. Frankly, unfortunately, it's the truth that a lot of Christians today still operate in. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the moral law. Jesus starts and he says, Have you heard, or you have heard, it said, you shall love your, help me, neighbor, and you shall hate your enemy. And so right there, we have a foundation for the character of God being one of the capability of loving as well as hating. God blesses and he curses. He chooses people to bless and he chooses people to curse. Jesus continues, but I say to you, 
love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If there's anything, if there was one thing Jesus came to do, it was certainly to reveal the character and nature of the Father. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. When you hear Jesus, you hear the Father speaking. He continues, For God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Fascinating that God would bless bad people. And so why do we struggle with the idea that Bad things would happen to good people. Could I suggest to you that we might do well to do away with the idea of good and bad people? That you would not judge that that judgment hasn't been given to you and me. That hasn't been granted to you and me. We don't have that authority in this life on this earth to choose, to discern between, to decide who's bad and who's evil. Now, I I would suggest to you, because I know what you're thinking, is there no evil in the earth? Well, definitely there is. And aren't there any human beings that are expressing that evil through their actions? Let's take ISIS, for instance. Yes, there are. And shouldn't evil be dealt with for the common good? Yes, it should. And that's why we make war. That's why we have bombs. That's why we have bullets. That's why we kill people in war. But I'm talking about those... I'm talking about the humanity that Jesus came and died for which is everyone, not some. And God doesn't distinguish between bad and good. He blesses everyone and expects everyone to look to him for his goodness and his kindness. Now, there's a second thought I want to quickly deal with here as we're laying a foundation for why we think God sends bad things even to good people. See, I'm going somewhere in these definitions here. Let's deal for a moment with this idea of the wrath of God. Did I get anybody's attention? How about the, it's called the anger of the Lord in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it's called the wrath of God. Well, uh, here's something that's interesting. This is such a foundation, this idea, this concept of wrath, the wrath of God or the anger of the Lord. It's such a foundation for God punishing people that we must at least mention it. Now, I do not have the time to exegete this. It would deserve a whole series to really tear it apart. And I've, I've done that, actually, in a series called The Scandal of Grace. You can get it from the Internet. I taught it last year, The Scandal of Grace, on the book of Romans, the first eight chapters. Did you know that the wrath of God is never mentioned in the book of Genesis? Not once. Did you know that it doesn't appear until the Levitical priesthood is put in place? 
See, the wrath or anger of God is tied to the Levitical priesthood of laws, of cursing for disobedience, of blessing for obedience. And here's something to sort of wrap your mind around. I'll just leave you the scriptures. 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 1. Jeff, are we actually going to have those? Okay, thank you. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he incited David against them saying, Go take a census of Israel. Look at it again. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he, now we read that God, the Lord, incited David. It actually should be read, and he, the anger of the Lord, or the anger, anger has a personality, incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now watch this. Here is that exact same reference or incident referenced in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1. Jeff. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. The anger of the Lord is Satan. Now, I know you'd love for me to just like, gosh, you can't leave us with that. (laughs) I can, I can, and I have to because we've got so much more to cover. But listen... If you, if you want to try to get your arms around that concept of the wrath and the anger of God and really deal with that and, and, and how Scripture from, from old and new covenants wrestles with this nature and character of God, you need to be here in June for the Genesis factor that John Master Giovanni is doing with this. He's a Hebrew and Greek scholar. Nina already mentioned it to you. We'll be talking a lot more about it. Please get registered for that seminar. All right. Now... This leads us to the most obvious and famous issue or passage or book or character in the whole Bible that would deal with this concept of why bad things happen to good people. Who might I be talking about? Job. Job. Uh, Excuse me, Job. (laughs) Well, it's spelled the same. (laughs) Let's go. Now, I'm not actually going to ask you to turn to Job because, oh my goodness. But let let me give you a couple of, there's a famous book, over 4 million copies of this book have been sold. Number one best seller on the New York Times list that promotes the idea of the righteous suffering as well as using Job as an example of, the New Testament, of a New Testament believer, which he is not. Job is not an example of a New Testament believer. So you, you just cannot exegete that scripture that way. Get rid of it. Job is... Everything that happened to Job happened before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. The death and the resurrection of Jesus changed the entire universe. In that one event, that one happening, changed all of humanity. You can't go back to the life of Job and use it as an example 
of how God treats people today. Now, let's, let's, let's explore this a little bit further, however. Here's an example of some of the views on Job that I, I just sifted through off of the internet. One article said, and I quote, question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Answer, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that's a difficult question in all of theology. God is eternal, infinite, and omniscient, and omnipresent, and omnipotent. Why should we humans, who are not eternal, infinite, omniscient, omnipresent, or omnipotent, expect to be able to fully understand God's ways. The book of Job deals with this issue. No, it doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't deal with that issue, and yes, we should expect to know God's ways. In fact, the Bible tells us that we can know God's ways. Paul told us that by our worship and prayer life and praying in the Holy Spirit, we can know God's secrets And God wants to reveal himself to us. It's part of the Christian life. Here's another author's take called Lessons from Job. And I'll just lift a a sentence. Quote, God permitted Job to suffer because he was proud of him. I know, it's just bizarre. Stay with me. The patriarch was Jehovah's answer to Satan's challenge. He was his maker's trophy. End quote. So don't be too righteous, don't be too successful in God, don't live too good of a Christian life. I mean, if you start like being a trophy of righteousness, a trophy of a good Christian, look out, (laughs) look out because God's going to set you before Satan and say, hey, take a shot at him, let's do your best, rip him apart. He's my trophy, I'm so proud of him, ruin his life. (laughs) Oh, Jesus, help us with these things that we read, that we hear, that we learn. Help us, Father, with the spirit of revelation. All right, so I, I got to thinking, Job, 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 why are we so fascinated with Job? Why do so many Christians who are partakers of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ who supposedly have studied the New Testament, who supposedly have studied the Pauline doctrine of grace and forgiveness and redemption and restitution and reconciliation. How is it that we love to dip back into an Old Testament character, Job, and pull from his life so many things? I got to thinking, I wonder how many times the New Testament quotes Job. Why, why should that be interesting? Because anything of importance in the Old Covenant that truly bore on the theology that they taught in the New Testament was quoted often. Let me give you an example. Abraham. Abraham was quoted, or the, his name and things, referrals to Abraham, was used over 70 times in the New Testament. Moses is referred to over 79 times in the New Testament. The book of Psalms is referred to specifically as a psalm, or quoting a psalm, seven times, but the psalms are quoted over 170 times in the New Testament. Isaiah the prophet 
is referred to 32 times. The law of Moses is referred to 172 times. David is referred to 54 times. Genesis, the book of Genesis, is cited 200 different times. Plus, get this, of the 50 chapters in Genesis, only seven are not quoted or cited in the New Testament. How important does that make a study on Genesis? Listen to this one. More than half of the 200 New Testament allusions to Genesis are found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Oh my goodness. Watch this. 63 of those 200 allusions to Genesis or mentions are in the first three chapters of Genesis. Now, when John Master Giovanni comes and does his seminar, all evening Thursday, evening Friday, all day Saturday, he will spend the entire time in the first three chapters of Genesis. Guess why? You want to know how many times Job is referred to or quoted in the New Testament? Once. Only once. Let's look at it. James chapter 5, verse 11. I think we're going to have it on the screen. You know we call those blessed who were steadfast and who endured, endured, Difficult circumstances. You have heard of the patient endurance of Job, and you have seen the Lord's outcome, how he richly blessed Job. The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. That's a little bit different take on Job. The book of Job, as far as the New Testament Christian is concerned, there's one thing we should draw from the book of Job. One thing only. James tells us. Look at it. You have heard of the patient endurance of Job. Period. It is not an expose on God's character. It is not an expose on why bad things happen to good people. It is an expose on how a man stood patiently and did not give up on his faith. That's the message of Job, as far as the New Testament Christian is concerned. Now, uh, I know also when we talk about why bad things happen to good people, we, we have to deal with this idea of, uh, of Paul. You know, if, you know, Paul said, if you're going to passionately follow Jesus, you, you are going to suffer a lot. All right, well, let's look at what Paul said. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Here's what Paul said. Here's what people mean when they quote that. And I'm first going to read it from the message translation. I, I love this Bible. I love the author. I love so many of his books, the author who translated this. It, it's so helpful, the message translation, many times. But boy, did he mess up on this. <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Anyone who wants to live all out for Christ is in for a lot of trouble. 
There's no getting around it. <laughs> you, you know the brother. Who, who, who's the brother? He also wrote the tremendous book on pastoring. Eugene Peterson. Oh, man. You, it's hard to go deeper than Eugene P- Peterson. Wrote the most profound study on, on pastoring and, and the shepherd. You, 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 you want to read it. But this is unfortunate, this translation. Here's, here's the NIV, the New International Version. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. All right? Now, here is the Aramaic, which is the language that they spoke at the time when this was written. All those desiring of living by fearing God with Jesus, the Messiah, are persecuted. (laughs) He's not talking about suffering disease and sickness, suffering bad things happening to you, car wrecks and disease and your family being wiped out and you losing all your children. And I mean, that's Job, but that's not the New Testament Christian. He's talking about persecutions, not Job's trials. In fact, I would say to you this. If you think you're in Job's trials, if you think you're experiencing Job's trials, well, get ready for Job's blessings. We read how God set him up at the end and just blasted him with all this abundance and provision and he restored everything he had lost and he had many, many times more. Somebody asked, wives too? (laughs) I said, well, I don't think so, but... What are you chuckling about? (laughs) You, that's somebody who has not been married. Whoever said that? (laughs) That's somebody who's never been married. Hey, that goes both ways. That goes both ways. Husbands and wives know that. That works both ways. Now look. You know how important it is not to lift a verse in the Bible out of its context and establish a doctrine. So let's look at the previous two verses to verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way, my life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, and my persecutions and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions that I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Oh my goodness. Of course Paul went through incredible, incredible trial, incredible persecutions because of the message and the faith that he lived in and the message that he taught and brought. Yes. But it even says, the Lord, his own testimony, the Lord delivered me out of them all. Is that your testimony? If you feel like you're in the midst of something bad and God sent it, 
Well, men, you should be testifying on the other end of that. God delivered me out of it all. Look, look at how much I am blessed. Look at all the wonderful things happening in my life. What's the purpose of the test and the trials then? Why do bad things happen to good people? Let's go to James. I'm going to re be reading in chapter 1 of James. This is the key passage. If you want to ever study this subject, there is a passage in the Bible to study it from, and it's not the book of Job. It is James, chapter 1. We're going to read it now. Look with me, verses 2 through 6. I'll be reading from the Amplified Translation. Consider it nothing but joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you fall into various trials. Stop. Pause. Selah. When was the last time you looked at a stack of bills so high you thought, we're going to have to declare bankruptcy? And your response was, glory to God, hallelujah, God's got a way out of this, I know he's going to bless me, come on honey, let's dance, come on baby, woo, glory. When's the last time you did that? <laughs> when's the last time the doctor handed you the piece of paper and said this and that this and that you'll be on these medications the rest of your life you know in, in fact over the next couple of years what you should expect is that it's just going to deteriorate and when you got that maybe even right there in the office with the doctor you looked at him and said Glory to God. Hallelujah. This is great news. Not the problem, but the fact that God is getting ready to turn this around in my life and bless me with even greater strength and greater health than ever before. James quite simply says, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into various trials whatever they are, be assured, here's the purpose, that the testing of your faith through experience produces endurance. Now, isn't that what we read about Job when James commented on his book, on his life, in chapter 5? This is what Job should be known for, his patient endurance. We continue verse 4. And let endurance have its perfect result and do a thorough work so that you may be perfect and complete, completely developed, lacking nothing. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom to guide him through a decision or a circumstance, he's to ask our benevolent God who gives to everyone generously and without rebuke or blame and it will be given to him. Verse 6, but he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a billowing surge of the sea that is blown about and tossed by the wind. The Greek word there for perseverance or endurance is hupomeno. It means to stand up under like a bridge, like the bulwark of a bridge. Now, this series that we're in is called The Journey. And this message is so important because on your journey, life, the devil, things that you sow <laughs> and reap, 
misunderstandings, people acting out in evil. All of that is a reality on this fallen planet. And we are subject to it. We are going to experience all sorts of things. We live in an earth suit that's not yet redeemed. We live on an earth that's full of evil. We, we live in a system that's full of evil. It's not perfect. And we know there's going to be trials and temptations and tests. But James says, number one, face it with joy. Then secondly, he says, it's an opportunity for your faith to show up and hold up like a bridge work your pathway. Because here's the deal, folks. If you fold when times get tough, your pathway will be diverted. And it will take you longer to get to your destiny. God never counts you out. He never says no. He never says give up. He never says, well, you've blown it so bad that I can't get you to where you need to be. He never does that. He follows us. In fact, he's in the midst of wherever you are, wherever you've wound up. He follows us. He's there with us in the midst of that darkness. And he will lead you back to the path. But I'll tell you what, your path, your destiny will be brighter, trials will be shorter, faith will be greater, victory will be sweeter, if whenever you face a test or trial of any kind, you do two things. Number one, rejoice, and number two, consider it an opportunity for your faith to stand up under that. That's what's happening. God didn't send it, but it is an opportunity for you to grow stronger. You will either grow stronger or you will grow weaker through it. One of my dear friends recommended a book to me that I've been reading called Leadership Pain. I'd like to give you two quotes from this great book, again, titled Leadership Pain. Number one, sometimes God delivers you from the fiery furnace. Other times, he makes you fireproof. When he makes you fireproof, you must endure it. Isn't that good? Wow. Whether he delivers you out of the furnace or makes you fireproof to go through it, He's there with you. He never leaves you. He is going to bring you through it. Rejoice. Stand up under. Use your faith. Stay steady. Continue to quote the word of God, and you will see your victory come. Your testimony will be like Paul's. Though I went through all of this trial and test and persecution, out of it all, the Lord delivered me. Here's the second quote. You will grow only to the threshold of your pain. To grow more, raise your threshold. <laughs> Jesus, I don't want to hear that. I want things to be easier, especially if I'm in leadership. <laughs> don't you insulate me? Don't you protect me? Don't you give me greater blessings because I'm serving you in a greater way? <laughs> Anybody who's doing anything for the Lord is a target. 
You are more of a target when you get involved and really passionately serve God, especially if you step into leadership, than if you just kind of live an average, ho-hum, mediocre Christian life. You're getting along, but, you know, you're not impressing anybody, including yourself. God's got more for you. Come on. God's got more for you. And yes, there'll, there'll be a target painted onto your back. But bless the Lord, greater reward, greater joy, greater experiences of His presence are out there if you'll raise your pain level and rejoice in the midst of your test. Now, listen to this from the psalmist in chapter 34, verse 19. I love this. The righteous person, he might have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Isn't that good? That's the old covenant. That's a song that they were singing. The Lord delivers me out of it all. The Lord delivers me out of it all. The next time you face, this week, this week, when you go back to work, all right, or or you're facing those bills or you're facing that difficulty, you know, and and you begin to get depressed and, and, and faith begins to get sucked out of you, you know what you start doing? You start singing. The Lord delivers me out of it all. The Lord delivers me out of it all. Come on, join me. Entertain me, all right? Come on, help me out. The Lord delivers me out of it all. The Lord delivers me out of it all. The Lord delivers me. That's on tape. That's going to go across the world. We have people in Japan watching this. Just looked this morning and there was somebody in Japan watching. Is that good? Dear ones, I'll leave you with this. And it's in your notes there if you just want to fill it in. Whatever circumstance you're in now, you remain steadfast in faith, and God will turn it around for blessing. 